Hi, this is Steve with Thresher Media Group. Welcome to When You're Ready to Listen. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the truth about God, things you may not have understood, may not have been taught, or quite frankly, had a very hard time believing. And since our entire relationship with God rests on believing, it is important we learn how to separate the truth from the many lies and fictions that abound within the religion of Christianity. So when you're ready to listen, tune in and discover a pathway to freedom, encouragement, life, and hope. Just a little reminder, if these podcasts have been a blessing in your life, please go to threshermediagroup.com and donate. We are a public charity, so all your donations are tax deductible. With that said, let's move into episode 51, Revelation chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. In our last podcast, we got our first glimpse of the throne room of God. There was lightning, peals of thunder, lamps burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal emanating out from the throne. That took us through part of verse 6, and we'll pick up with the rest of verse 6 through 8 and look at these very strange creatures, living beings that surround the throne. This image has mind-blowing prophetic implications, so strap in and let's go. The four, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, now being full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature, like a lion, and the second creature, like a calf, and the third creature, now having a face like that of a man, and the fourth creature, like an eagle, now choosing to be flying. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are now full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they do not cease to now be saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is being and who is now choosing to be coming. Okay, these four creatures are bizarre. There's really nothing like them. The Codex gives us a couple of references to draw upon. But again, there is nothing precisely the same as this description, just remarkably close. These creatures seem to be a special hybrid of the angelic beings known as cherubim and seraphim, as they have attributes of both. In Ezekiel, we are presented an image of the glory of Yahweh on his mobile throne. It's a very bizarre image, but within the glory, there were four living beings. Their overall appearance was human in form, and they had human hands, but their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they glowed like burnished bronze, bronze on fire. They each had only four wings. The odd thing is that they had four sides. On one side, they had the face of a man. On the right side, the face of a lion. On the left side, the face of a bull, cow or an ox. And on the side opposite the face of the man, they had the face of an eagle. In addition, their whole body, their backs, their hands, and their wings, and the wheels, were full of eyes all around. These are cherubim. And then in Isaiah, we're given an image of seraphim, each having six wings, which stood above Yahweh sitting on his throne. And they called out to one another, Holy, holy is Yahweh Sabaoth. The whole earth is full of his glory. These four creatures are remarkably similar to the cherubim, the faces and the eyes, and to the seraphim, the wing. However, these four living creatures do not have four faces. Each creature has only one face, that of a lion, a man, an eagle, and a cow, respectively, whereas each cherubim have four faces comprised of the same combination of creatures. 
The four living creatures do, however, have six wings like the seraphim, yet they cry out continually day and night something similar but different to the cry of the seraphim. The seraphim cry out day and night, holy, holy is Yahweh Sabaoth, the whole earth is full of his glory. But the four living creatures, day and night, they do not cease to now be saying, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is being and who is now choosing to be coming. There is another passage in the Codex that speaks of God who sits on his throne. And the implication is that he sits either above or between the cherubim. Hence, maybe the four living creatures are another type of cherubim, different than the ones revealed in Ezekiel. We do not know for sure. So we will just call them the four to keep things simple. The eyes covering their bodies and wings may look a bit disturbing, but the point is nothing will catch them by surprise. They will never not see what is happening around them. And this will be important when we come to understand the role of the four. The faces of each of the four are extremely significant. The lion, the ox, the face of a man, and an eagle in flight. First, I want us to take note that what we have here on earth in terms of living beings, the animal kingdom, was clearly patterned after that which already existed in heaven. There was no accidental or random evolution of species when it comes to the animal kingdom. Rather, it was all fashioned, intentionally made after that which exists and had been in existence in the heavenly realms. For example, even demonic spirits, fallen angels, are often described using animal descriptions, birds, snakes, dragons, wild dogs, hawks, etc., as the animal captures not just their spiritual image, but their character and nature. Second, each of these images has messianic overtones and are tied symbolically to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospel of Matthew is written to demonstrate that Jesus is the king, the one whom the Jews were expecting to come and lead them in victory against their oppressors. This gospel is characterized by the kingly lion. The gospel of Mark is focused on all the ways that Jesus served the people through miracles and casting out of demons. This gospel is characterized by the ox, the one who serves. The gospel of Luke is written to demonstrate the humanity of Jesus and is characterized by the one now having a face of a man. And the gospel of John is written to prove that Jesus is Yahweh, characterized by the eagle that soars far above all of humanity. Being in the center and around the throne, the very presence of the four proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ to all who inhabit the spiritual realms. And the four have an incredibly unique role when it comes to protection of the saints of God. Prophetic Overtones The code reveals some hidden messages tucked within this image of the four. The lion and the ox are regular nouns with nothing special to note. Whereas the one who has a face of a man and the one like an eagle flying both utilize verbs in the present active participle. Thus, the spirit draws our attention to the fact that one of the four is now having the face of a man and another looks like an eagle that is now flying. Again, no such special notation is made of the lion or the ox. So, why the man and the eagle? This is our hint to dig deeper and to look further into the codex, keeping in mind that the spirit is not only intentional, but extremely precise. The mystery, the snake, the eagle, and the man. This is one of those very deep mysteries with a storyline that runs from Genesis through Revelation. This mystery connects the Garden of Eden, Jacob's blessing of his children, 
the chief of Dan, Eliezer, who is rumored to have altered the original tribal symbol, the prophecies of Moses over each tribe, the book of Job, yes, Job, the book of Daniel, the unique list of the tribes of Israel in Revelation 7, and the description of the beast referenced in Revelation 13. How is that for a mystery wrapped up on a whole lot of mysteries? The spirit is amazing. As it turns out, the tribe of Dan is the central link in all these stories. The Demonic Association Before Jacob died, he prophesied over each of his children. Some he blessed and some, eh, not so much. And each of their tribal standards, the flags which identified their family unit, drew from the imagery in their individual prophecy. The prophecy regarding Dan, however, is unique among his brothers. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. From the get-go, Dan was ascribed demonic characteristics. One who judges, a serpent, a horned snake, a poisonous bite, and a rider falling backwards. These are all characteristics that the Jews would have associated with the serpent in the garden, the fall of man, and the curse that would judge mankind and forever put man and the serpent at enmity, such that he, man, shall bruise you, serpent, on the head, and you shall bruise him on his heel, or strike him like the bite of a snake. That was one bad prophecy to have associated with your name. In fact, according to rabbinical tradition, the chief of Dan, whose name was Ahizer, was said to have intentionally changed the standard of their tribe from a snake to that of an eagle in a vain attempt to override the prophetic destiny. Little did he realize that utilizing the eagle as their image only made the situation worse, far worse. We'll get to the imagery of the eagle, but let's just say that the destiny of this tribe went more off the rails and further into the demonic. Then Moses, before he died, prophesied over the tribe of Dan. For the life of him, he just could not let the demonic association go. Moses said, Dan is a lion's whelp that leaps forth from Bashan. You might be thinking, huh, that's a good thing. A baby lion is cute, and no way could it be demonic. After all, Jesus' image is the lion of Judah. But note, this lion leaps from Bashan. This little detail begins to paint the picture more graphically. Bashan was a mountain located east of the Jordan River and north of the Sea of Galilee. The Israelites conquered this area during the days of Moses and Joshua. This area was in the land of the Amorites and was ruled by Og, king of Bashan, one of the last remaining descendants of the giants, the Rephaim. By the way, in biblical tradition, the giants were the offspring of an unauthorized union between demonic spirits and the women of men. Therefore, it should not be surprising that Bashan was a mountain that was a center of idolatry and demonic activity. The mountain of Bashan was thought to be the home of the gods Molech and Ashtoreth, both of whom are critical demonic deities in the story of the dragon, Satan, and the beast, the demonic spirit who possesses the man we call the Antichrist. But you will have to wait until we get to Revelation 17 to understand their connection. But as a teaser, they are part of Satan's demonic council who will be given over to the beast. 
In certain Ugaritic artifacts, Molech's name appears in a series of snake charms, along with the name of Ashtoreth, clearly making a connection to the symbol of the tribe of Dan. Molech was the god linked to child sacrifice, and the Ugaritic people believed Bashan was a gateway to the underworld, literally the gates of hell. In the book of Enoch, the fallen angels, in fact, were purported to have arrived on earth in this area, specifically Mount Hermon. And the entire area was considered to be cursed with evil. The gates of hell were also known for Baal worship, another key demonic deity who is also associated with Moloch and Ashtoreth and is part of the Satanic Council. In fact, Mount Hermon was also referred to as Mount Baal Hermon. And under the Romans, this area was the center of the worship of Pan. The Romans called this place the Rock of the Gods, for in the rocks were carved images of gods and goddesses. In fact, it was in the region of Bashan, which is known in the New Testament era as Caesarea Philippi. This is where Jesus said to his disciples, upon or against this rock, I shall build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail over it. Yes, Jesus was standing at a physical structure in Bashan when he made this grand statement. His point was that even these centers of demonic worship would not stand before his church. For it is from these centers of demonic perversions that he will stretch out his powers and establish his rule and dominance on earth as it is in heaven. In that light, the Codex records a prophecy stating that God will one day conquer Bashan and it will become a mountain of God. Thus, it is significant that it was in this region that Jesus asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Peter responded by saying that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. It was as if Jesus was stating his claim to this territory and over the spiritual entities that occupied this area. Thus he said that upon this rock, upon the place where false religion once dominated and demonic deities reigned, and with the confession that he, Jesus, is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he will build his church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Again, nothing in the Codex is anecdotal, trivial, or loosely presented by the Spirit of God. Okay, that was phenomenal and some pretty cool history, but there is more. Let's get back to Dan and to this area of Bashan in the territory of Dan. Returning to the prophecy of Dan who leaps forth from Bashan and to the settling of the promised land, it should not surprise us that this area became one of the centers of idol worship for northern Israel. After the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, after the time of King Solomon, King Jeroboam of the northern tribe of Israel set up two golden calves as idols for his people to worship, so they would not travel to Jerusalem to worship Yahweh, for Jerusalem was in the enemy territory of Judah, and he did not want people holding on to Yahweh loyalties. One of these cows was established in this area of Bashan in Dan and became a hub for evil and idolatry. Dan literally leaps forth from Bashan, from this place of dark demonic evil. And it is from this center of spiritual wickedness that he shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel, shall be a serpent in their way, a horned snake in the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. Yet, at the same time, in a very demonic sort of modus operandi, Dan is also cloaked with deception. That is what it meant when Moses said that Dan was a lion's whelp, and what Jacob said when he called Dan a judge. 
Both images initially give a good impression. One might be convinced that Dan sat under the tutelage of Judah and was, in effect, an offspring of the line of Judah, which is one of Jesus's titles, and therefore worthy to sit as a judge or a ruler of the people. Again, this seems like a good prophecy, but things are not always as they seem, for they are wrapped in deception. Keep in mind, just as Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, it should not surprise us that the servants of Satan disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Antichrist alert. All of this has eerie overtones to the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, literally the son of the destroyer or the son of destruction. By the way, the destroyer or destruction is referenced throughout Revelation as the beast, the demonic being that comes forth from the abyss and ultimately possesses the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness is the one who comes by deception and intrigue and takes his seat of authority in the temple of God, which is from amongst the chosen of God, those who are now dwelling in the sanctuary or the nous. And he declares that he is God. This is the famed abomination of desolation. This describes the man we call the Antichrist. But the man is possessed by none other than the beast, the destroyer or destruction. And he is doing the beast's bidding. Once possessed by the beast, this man will demand to be worshipped, and he will kill anyone who refuses. He will take up rule or becomes the judge over all those who dwell on this earth, including those believers who were called into the kingdom of God but never became chosen. These are those who are a part of the great falling away or the great apostasy. The snake. This great falling away is imaged for us in Jacob's prophecy with the snake biting the horse and the rider falling backwards. The horse symbolizes a person's strength for war. And when that is poisoned by a bite, the rider falls away or literally apostatizes. And we cannot ignore the fact that this man of lawlessness uses deception or intrigue to infiltrate the community of believers that he influences to fall away. He arises or literally takes his seat of authority from within the church, the temple of God. He comes across as a lion's whelp, a descendant of the tribe of Judah, someone who is godly and trustworthy. But he is anything but that, for he is an evil, deceptive force that leaps forth from Bashan. The book of Daniel tells us that this leader, the man we call the Antichrist, who is possessed by the beast, will be insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He'll be empowered by lesser demons that we will see imaged as a hawk, and ultimately by the beast imaged as an eagle. And he'll destroy to an extraordinary scale and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he'll destroy many while they are at ease or unsuspecting. Again, this man who is possessed by demons arises to power from within the religion of Christianity. His relationship, or more precisely, the beast's relationship with Christianity, is imaged much later in Revelation by the woman Babylon who rides this beast or is literally supported by the beast. This image speaks of the way the beast holds up and uses Christianity to gain power and to gain influence such that even those in Christianity will be deceived and trust this insolent man. Hence, not just a few, but many will fall away when he declares himself to be God. 
But we will also come to find out that the beast hates religion. He hates the woman who rides upon him. And once he assumes enough power and authority, he will destroy her, literally eat her flesh and burn her up with fire. Thus, the tribe of Dan is a picture of the kingdom of the beast who works deceit and destruction from within the church through the man we call the Antichrist. Fiction alert. Fiction alert. The temple of God. By the way, the Old Testament Jewish temple was a picture, a symbol, part of the code depicting a spiritual temple comprised of those who call on the name of Yahweh. The temple was comprised of a sanctuary or a holy place where only the priests could enter. In Greek, it's called the nous. And there was an outer court where the people at large were allowed to worship Yahweh. The temple at large is referred to in Greek as the hieron. But again, the sanctuary is referred to as the nous. This is a critical distinction. In that light, the New Testament makes it clear that true believers, those who call on the name of the Son of God, the name Yahweh, are both individually and collectively the nous of God, or the holy place, the sanctuary, for the Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory, dwells in them. Sadly, most translations butcher this distinction and simply refers to believers as the temple of God. But those who are even now worshiping in the nous or the holy place are the chosen priests of God. Now, modern end times fiction states that there will be a third Jewish temple built and that this is one of the signs of the end. And they assert that it is from this iconic temple of Jewish worship that the man takes his authority over the world. However, this fiction is contrary to the New Testament theology. The Spirit declared that the old Jewish system of temple worship to be dead and vanishing, never to return. He also declared that Israel will be without priests, literally the priestly ephod, sacrifice or sacred pillar in the temple until the time they will seek Yahweh and come trembling to him and to his goodness in the last days. Thus, this old system of worship in a third temple will not be resurrected despite the popular fiction. And even if for some reason the Jewish nation pulled off this feat, it will not be the temple of God, but just a building. And the Antichrist, the beast, will not take his seat of authority from within this structure. The Spirit of God is very precise. He warns us, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who now chooses to be opposing and now chooses to be exalting himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the sanctuary, the nous of God, even now displaying himself that he is now God. Consistent with this imagery of Dan, this man, through the beast that possesses him, will disguise himself as a servant of righteousness and take his seat or his authority from within the holy place of God, where the chosen priests of God are found. He does not take his authority from the temple at large, the Hieron, but specifically the sanctuary. Perhaps this is why Jesus said, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect or literally the chosen. The beast exercising its power through this man will be so powerful and convincing that if it were possible, 
even the chosen would be misled by his claims to godliness and spiritual authority. The eagle. Now, what ties all this together is the changing of the image on the tribal standard of Dan from the snake, with all its demonic connections, into the eagle. You've heard of that saying that you can take the boy out of the country, but you can't take the country out of the boy. That applies to the tribe of Dan. In other words, changing their tribal standard did not change their tribal characteristics of the demonic. In fact, it enhanced it. As I said previously, it only made things worse, far worse. Birds, especially raptors, are often, but not always, associated with demonic spirits in the biblical narrative. For example, the birds who eat the seed that fell beside the road. Or Babylon, a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. Keeping that in mind, the eagle is also used in some beautiful passages that focus on the marvel of its flight, which is a picture or code indicating a means of rescue and help. For instance, Yahweh said that in rescuing the Israelites from the Egyptians, he carried them on eagles' wings. And like an eagle hovering over its young, he spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. Keeping in mind this distinction of an eagle in flight versus an eagle as a violent raptor, which sits on top of the aerial food chain, it is not coincidence that one of the four is imaged like an eagle now choosing to be flying. And later in Revelation 12, 14, we're given an image of the nation of Israel once again being saved by the two wings of a great eagle. Again, this image of an eagle in flight speaks of rescue and help, but the image of an eagle that swoops on its prey speaks of violence, destruction, judgment, and devastation. Yes, like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of Yahweh. In Job, the spirit addresses the character or nature of an eagle as a violent predator. Specifically, it makes a direct connection to the beast, the demonic spirit who possesses the man we call the Antichrist. This connection is made when Jesus, speaking about the time of the tribulation, quotes Job. In fact, both Luke and Matthew, where the body is, or the corpse, there the eagle will be gathered. Yes, that odd quote was from the book of Job. And Jesus quotes it at the end of the discourse about the tribulation. And just throws the statement out there, a statement which most just read over and never make the connection to the book of Job. In Job, we see the beast first image as a hawk who stretches his wings towards the south. This is a specific clue, which will later be picked up in the prophecies of Daniel, which ties to the political and military actions of the Antichrist, who wages a military campaign from the north against the king of the south, namely Egypt, having Israel caught in between. This all occurs as the Antichrist wages his campaign for world order. Once he establishes his kingdom, the Antichrist moves quickly with the speed and precision of the hawk and secures his kingdom through politics and war. All is detailed in Daniel chapter 11, verses 21 through 45. With that said, this man does not gain his global dominance until after he is physically possessed by the beast. Once the beast is released from the abyss, which does not happen until the sounding of the fifth trumpet, well into the first three and a half years of the tribulation. But once the beast is released from the abyss and is free, he is imaged in Job as the eagle. An eagle is much more powerful than a hawk, and it kills with its beak. It's not about politics and war, squeezing a victim to death in its talons like the hawk. Rather, the eagle strikes with its beak and strikes hard and quickly kills its prey, 
in this image of the eagle, it is possible that we see the Antichrist supercharged after he is possessed by the beast, who also happens to be supercharged by Satan, as the dragon, Satan, will give the beast his power, throne, and great authority. Daniel tells us that the kingdom of the beast will be unlike all other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it, much like the ferocity and effectiveness of the eagle as it hunts and kills its prey. Yahweh, speaking in Job 39, says that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high. To begin with, let me quickly address some language issues. There is a controversy as to whether the word translated as eagle should be vulture or vice versa. And in most of our English translations, it goes back and forth, or at least carries a notion as such. And this is troubling. Some will argue that in Old Hebrew, it's essentially the same word, and therefore, there's some translation flexibility. However, Leviticus 11.13 makes a clear distinction between the two birds, as they were both designated as being unclean and not to be eaten. And the word we have translated throughout the Old Testament as eagle comes from a Hebrew root word meaning to lacerate. That is not an attribute typical of a vulture. Unfortunately, when Jesus quotes this passage in Luke 17 through 37 and Matthew 24, 28, most translators choose to go with vulture, largely because of the picture of the slain, and vultures are generally associated with being around dead corpses. But the translators likely did not consider a critical detail from the originating verse in Job and therefore missed this key connection to the eagle and not the vulture. And as a result, they missed the prophetic nature of Jesus' statement. First, most vultures do not tend to make nests, and those that do locate them in trees or natural cavities and cliffs, but not on high. That is what the eagle does. The vulture tends to roost in groups on the ground, in trees, and sometimes in the cliffs. But the eagle takes up residence in the high, inaccessible places upon the rocky crag or the tallest of trees. In the Codex, Yahweh makes this distinction so that we would not get confused. In fact, he specifically makes this clear in two very similar passages. Jeremiah 49, 16. O you who live in the clefts of the rock, who occupy the height of the hill, though you make your nest as high as an eagle's, I will bring you down from there, declares Yahweh. Obadiah 4. Though you build high like the eagle, Though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. Second, vultures tend to prey on the dead. Some vultures do eat live animals from time to time, but their preferred meal comes from dead and decaying animals. That is what they are known for. Therefore, it is common for those translations in Luke 17.37 and Matthew 24.28 to be rendered as vulture and not eagle because of this association with the dead corpse in the passages which Jesus quotes from Job. Where the body is, or the corpse, there the vulture or the eagle will be gathered. There is a practical problem with this understanding, however, as vultures feed their chicks regurgitated liquids, not the blood of recently killed animals. However, in the original passage in Job, which Jesus quotes, Yahweh makes the point that the chick, its young ones, gulps up blood. His young ones also suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. Unlike the vulture, the eagle brings fresh kills to his nest and feeds its young the blood. Thus, where the slain are, there is he, is not referring to a bird who is hanging around the dead, 
waiting for their opportunity to munch on dead and decaying flesh. Rather, it refers to those the bird kills whose fresh blood is fed to the young ones. Accordingly, it is likely this image of the eagle is an apocalyptic picture of the beast, which is in the context of how Jesus used this verse as he quotes Job in specific reference to the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, and the death and destruction that this man will pour out on the earth. At the command of Yahweh, the beast will ascend to power and rule over the kingdom of man. Yahweh has already set his plan into motion, and it will take place because it is his will. The beast will ascend to a place where he is inaccessible, high and protected, just like the eagle. And it is from this place that he will spy out his prey. As the supernatural plays out in the natural, the Antichrist will be untouchable. The nations and the kings of the world will not be able to rally themselves and bring him down. As he ascends to power as a demon-possessed hawk, he will face opposition, especially when the prey which he sets his eyes upon is Egypt. Nevertheless, he will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And once he achieves full power, the power of the eagle, he will ascend to this place of ultimate human authority such that even the greatest of Western nations will not be able to stop him. Daniel says he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hands for a time and times and half a time. In other words, true believers will be hunted down, found out, and he will exhaust them. And those who truly belong to Yahweh and refuse to bow down and worship the beast will be slaughtered. Where the slain are, there is he. And he will feed the blood of the saints to his young, to his cohort of demons which follow and serve the beast. Dan, the demonic tribe. So whether the tribe of Dan is depicted as a snake or an eagle, it is a demonic tribe bent on deception, violence, and domination. And this is most particularly noticeable in Revelation 7, where we find a unique list of the tribes of Israel. This is a list unlike any that is ever found in the Codex. It stands apart for several reasons. But for our purposes, I want to note that Dan is not included in this list of tribes that gets marked by an angel and set apart for God. The tribes who get marked are those who do not succumb to the rulership of the beast, and they have a certain protection afforded to them. Perhaps this protection is captured in the phrase, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect or the chosen. Because of this special protection, it simply will not be possible for them to be misled by these deceptions. Accordingly, amongst all the historical tribes of Israel, the tribe of Dan is set apart, not for God, but for the beast. Thus, the tribe of Dan is a symbol of apostasy and antichrist. Secret message. All of this was to explore why two of the four living creatures are called out, and is specifically marked by the code with the use of the present active participle. And it all circles back around to Genesis 3 and the reality that the snake is now and continually at enmity with man, the one who will crush his head, a prophetic reference to Jesus and to the offspring of this man. Thus, the inheritor of this demonic affiliation, the eagle, will wage war against the children of the one who will crush him. Where the slain are, there is he. Now, let me be clear. This story of the tribe of Dan does not mean that one of the four, the one who is like an eagle that now chooses to be flying, that he is bad or wicked in any way. Rather, he provides a promise 
that the nation of Israel will once again be rescued and helped in its time of desperate need. This was a hidden message, a secret that is not obvious. But if you stick to the code in the codex, these secrets come unveiled. I just find it fascinating how the Spirit leaves a little trail of breadcrumbs that have followed leads us to an incredible journey through the prophetic so that those who are now having ears to hear can understand what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The Guardians, the Four. We cannot miss that the four are positioned to the center and around the throne, like bodyguards or sentries. Clearly, Yahweh does not need protection, as he is Yahweh, God Almighty. But as angelic beings, the primary job of the four is always about ministering or rendering service to those who will inherit salvation. They are like a protective detail of security provided to those who sit on the 24 thrones, the completed body of Christ, the royal priests of the Lord. And with eyes all over their bodies and wings, they see every threat from any direction that might come against the chosen ones of God. And with full of eyes being rendered not as an adjective describing them, but a verb, in the present act of participle, we can understand that they are now and continually vigilant in their oversight of all that they guard and protect. Their eyes are always watching. To understand further the role of the four, let us turn to the Codex. When the tribes of Israel were to camp or advance in tribal formation through the wilderness, Yahweh gave them specific instructions on how they were to assemble, the order of which had messianic overtones. In the middle were to be the Levites, the priests who carried the tabernacle. Again, this is an image of the chosen of God. And they were to be surrounded, guarded, if you may, by the remaining tribes. But the pattern in which they advanced or camped was not a circle but it was directional in columns. To the east were the tribes of Judah, Issachar and Zebulun, led by the tribe of Judah, whose tribal symbol or standard was the lion. To the west were the tribes of Ephraim, Manasseh and Benjamin, led by the tribe of Ephraim, whose standard was the ox. To the south was the tribes of Reuben, Simeon and Gad, led by the tribe of Reuben, whose tribal standard was man. And then to the north were the tribes of Dan, Naphtali and Asher, led by the tribe of Dan, whose tribal standard became the eagle. This was also the pattern they would assume when they stopped to camp. They would set up the tabernacle in the middle, the Levites camped around the tabernacle, and the tribes were gathered to the east, west, north, and south of the tabernacle. As I said, they were not instructed to encircle the tabernacle or the priests, but to assemble in a directional barrier. Thus, if a tribe had more people, it advanced in a longer column rather than a fatter column. The reason being is that they spread out wider, they would have been, for example, due east, but more southeast or northeast. And the priests would have taken this instruction literal and not metaphorical and stuck to the column structure. Now, adjusting for the population of each camp, the overhead view of the entire Israeli camp advancing through the wilderness under Judah's lead would have looked like a cross with the tabernacle of God and the priests of God in the center. I've included some important illustrations that help drive home this final point, and you can download this transcript with the illustrations at threshermediagroup.com. I also recreated the image with the number of troops we are given per collective tribal gathering, and what we see unmistakably is the cross. Now, try and tell me that the prophetic is not totally and unbelievably cool. 
Yahweh is so creative in every aspect of what he does. The cross, really? Yes, the cross. Like the tribes that surround the Levites and the tabernacle, identified by their banners, the lion, the ox, the man, and the eagle, these four ministering spirits provide some form of protection to the priests of God who sit on the 24 thrones which surround the throne of Yahweh. Just picture this. There's the throne of God surrounded by the 24 elders who are surrounded by the four all laid out in the direction they traveled with the ox representing the tribe of Benjamin to the west, the lion representing the tribe of Judah to the east, the eagle representing the tribe of Dan to the north, and the man representing the tribe of Reuben to the south. By the way, going back to our previous discussions with Dan being one of these protective tribes which surround the priesthood, It gives additional credence to the idea that the man we call the Antichrist will arise or take his authority out of or from the heart of Christianity. Let's stop here and we'll pick up in our next podcast. To get a free download of the full written transcript with all the scripture references footnoted, please go to threshermediagroup.com. That is T-H-R-E-S-H-E-R mediagroup.com This is Steve with Thresher Media Group. When you're ready to listen, tune in.